a series of Bible readings this morning from Colossians and then from two readings from Matthew. So for Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. And then from Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and you don't play favourites. Now tell us what you think of this. Is it right to pay tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them, and they went away. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must, love the God, Lord, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. May the Lord bless these readings. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the message that Gerald has prepared, which we know is what you want him to say to us. May it flow through him, may it bless each hearer, may we have open hearts and minds to receive. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like to start first with this, a brief synopsis of, of the sermon last week, because it leads directly into this week's sermon. We studied the proposition that rights always bear or are coupled with responsibilities. Now responsibility includes the idea of obligation and duty, but also authority, culpability and liability, i.e. that means that responsibility is to somebody and for something. The example that we saw was that of the babysitter. Now, in relation to the Adam and Eve story, mankind received the right to life and those things that sustained it, and also received authority over the Earth's creatures and the responsibility to tend, work, and care for the Earth. I suppose in modern parlance we would say the environment. So the right to sustenance bore the responsibility to work and care for the means of that sustenance. We also see in the Adam and Eve story that the failure to fulfill their responsibility 
made that same responsibility much more difficult to fulfill and more burdensome into the future. We saw the idea of rights and responsibilities enshrined in the transformation of the meaning of the word gentleman from a man of property to simply a good man. Now it is clear from this story that right at the start of mankind's existence, God granted rights and with them responsibilities. And my contention from that is that ultimately all rights and responsibilities are granted us by God and our responsibility is to God first and foremost. The first responsibility that was granted to mankind was to work, to provide for his, himself, his family, and to add value to his community. Now, why do I say to add value to his community? Well, if you look at 2 Thessalonians, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, this is in chapter 3, reading from verse 6. In the name of the Lord Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Paul himself sets the example of diligently fulfilling his obligation to God, for even though his labour for the brothers entitled him to be supported by them, either he says, we did, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. He chose to be self-supporting. He didn't want to be a burden. And he was conscious of how idleness was a burden to society, and more than that, idle hands are the devil's tools. Idle hands make mischief. You've probably heard those phrases before. So we see the idol in, in, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 13. Um, it reads, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not. So it's clear that Paul equates idleness with bad outcomes. Any of you know who Thomas Sowell was? Yeah, my brother does, I know. 
Thomas Sowell was a, a uh, African-American, we would say black American, but apparently that's not politically correct anymore. He was brought up by his grandmother and two maiden aunts because he was left an orphan at a very young age. He was very, very poor. He made his way in life uh, through hard work, basically, and ended up being a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. In other words, he was one of the leading scholars in the world. His field of expertise was economics. He had this to say about the problems that arose in the tenements in New York where he grew up as an adolescent. That idleness led to crime. He said you can, you can actually graph the explosion of crime in Harlem with the number of young men who were without work and who were on welfare. That's pretty startling. Idleness is not a good place to be. A holiday's okay, but idleness is not. So Paul's teaching on work is clear and it's a direct response to the first responsibility that God gave to us for maintaining the means of our sustenance. Now the Bible is principally about relationships. It's a book about the relationship between God and man and the relationship, the interrelationship between men, from man to man. Hence we have the commandments, because the commandments are a list of behaviours and attitudes that are the responsibilities placed on the people of God and on people generally that we might live in harmony. Now interestingly, five of the Ten Commandments have addendums, and five do not. By addendums, I mean they are expanded on. Can anybody tell me what the five that have no addendums are, that are just simply a bald statement? Sorry? Is it the first five? No, it's not the first five. Second. Murder? One. Adultery. Stealing. 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 Coveting. Sorry? Coveting. Covetousness. No, that's actually expanded on quite a bit. Although, in a particular way, he will deal with that perhaps. <laughs> Thou shalt have no other God before me. Um, so it, that's the first one. Now, what's interesting about those commandments... Actually, let's go and read them. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 is where they're found. So 
So Exodus 20, starting from verse 3, which is the start of the commandments. You shall have no gods before me. The next two commands actually expand on that, but they're, they're phrased somewhat differently. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in any form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guilt, guiltless Sorry, <coughs> who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your sons or daughters, nor your manservant, nor maidservant, nor animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. So you've got, you shall have no other God before me, and then these four statements of behaviour. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal or lie. And then the final one, you shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox, his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. So covetousness is actually expanded on a little bit. Okay, now it, it's interesting, or I find it interesting, that C.S. Lewis makes the comment that these four laws are universal laws. The four that are just bald statements. And he says that the moral code, these moral codes or laws are found in every society throughout history. And that all moral codes of every society throughout history has more similarity than difference. Now how they were applied or adhered to has differed greatly from age to age and from person to person. That's obvious to us. Nevertheless, the moral codes that everybody admits to, whether they adhere to them or not, it's a different thing, are very similar. So they're universal to mankind, and that's because they were given by God from the very beginning. In the sense that they are necessary for society to function, they lay out and bear the minimum of cooperation required for social structures to hold together. So they are laws that, like the natural laws, like the law of gravity, came into being at creation. They are not man's laws at all. They are simply discovered by man in the same way that the natural laws are discovered by man. Now, my interest today is in Law 4. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour. 
Now, you notice this. There's actually kind of two responsibilities here. The seventh day you shall keep holy, but six days you shall labour. Now, this six days you shall labour, this responsibility of labouring is, is really interesting. I find it absolutely fascinating because it's the only one with a time limit or a restriction. For six days you will toil, but the seventh you shall rest. You get a day off from this responsibility. Now, none other has this provision. The first three are about your relationship to God, but the fourth commandment is actually about caring for yourself. Why do I say that and it's not about relationship to God? Because isn't keeping the Sabbath about relationship to God? Well, partly only. Rest for the flesh is necessary. God didn't really need to rest on the seventh day. I have no doubt that that statement is true. But we do. Flesh and bone struggle without a period of recuperation. And yes, if we keep the seventh day holy, we are able to focus on God, and that helps us through the week to keep the first three commandments. And because it keeps us in balance, it keeps us humble, it helps us to keep the relationship with our fellow man. So the commandments lay out some basic responsibilities or obligations we have to God. And the fourth commandment lays out again the very first responsibility given to man, that of work or labour, but with some provisos, that is the day of rest, to make the work more bearable or more manageable. Now, don't you find it interesting that even in man's fallen state, God is laying down rules to help man survive and thrive. I don't know whether you've ever thought of it like that. It struck me only this last week. Now, our text for today takes, talks further about this responsibility and lays out the attitude we should have in going about our work. We read the passage in Colossians. I would like to lay the equivalent passage in Ephesians 6 alongside the passage we saw and we read in Matthew. Um, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 say pretty much the same things. In fact, the words are almost exactly the same. Translation I am reading reads this way. Bond servants, be obedient to them who are your masters according to the flesh, with sincerity and fear. In sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service or as man pleases, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. 
in the passage in Matthew, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and he said to those whose image is, oh, he said to them whose image is inscripted on this. And they said to him Caesar's. And he said to them, well, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now the passage in Matthew gives a clear separation or delineation between temporal authority and spiritual authority. We have in this world hierarchies that we work in and that we have responsibilities within. The context of these hierarchies demands that we both have responsibilities to someone and responsibilities for something. That's what hierarchies are all about, really. So we have context within the work, we have, we have these hierarchies, to put it in context, within the workplace, and we have them within the nation. People are chosen to make decisions for us. That's a hierarchical structure. And it's a structure that bears responsibility and gives authority and also has obligations. Now, the world's authority should not impact on our responsibilities to God. Should never. And mostly they don't. So we can pay our taxes and by extrapolation do our work with equal goodwill. When the worldly authorities try to impinge on the spiritual authorities, things get messy, but we're not going into that today. What we're looking at is spiritual authority. Because spiritual authority directly impacts with worldly authority. It certainly impacts our interaction with worldly and temporal authority. The word bondservant you can equate with every person in the hierarchy except the very top. In the ideal world that would be God as all responsibility is ultimately held to him and is conferred by him. We each have in some sense masters, that is people or organisations that we have obligations to. The passage in Matthew tells us to give them the service they are owed. But the passage in Ephesians talks about how the spiritual impacts the manner in which we do that service. The telling phrases are, serve in sincerity of heart as to Christ, and doing the will of God from the heart with good, good will doing service as to the Lord. Well, what is doing service as unto the Lord? What, in essence, is our primary responsibility? What is our primary responsibility to God? Well, what's the greatest commandment? You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I'm absolutely sure that the experts of the law, when they asked Christ that question, 
expected him to answer from one of the Ten Commandments. They expected him to pick one of them as being the, the most important or the greatest commandment. And I'm sure that he was also prepared with an argument refuting that that was not the greatest Ten Commandments, no matter, greatest commandment, no matter which one he picked. But what happens? Christ comes up with the best paraphrase of the Ten Commandments possible. And it leaves them speechless. I absolutely love this whole scene. It really fires my imagination. So oh, I would like to read it again and just try and imagine the whole scene. It's, it's I don't know, it's one of my favorite passages because of the way I imagine it, I guess. Um, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and just imagine it, these guys are coming to Christ, trying to trap him, trying to make him say something that they could embarrass him with. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He didn't go to the Ten Commandments. He gave an absolutely brilliant reply because in this reply, Christ puts his finger on our ultimate responsibility to God and to our fellow man. And it is love. So what this passage is saying is service should be done with the kind of love you owe God and Christ. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The passage goes on to say, Masters, treat your slaves, your bondservants, in the same way. So masters... Now, we have to go back to the hierarchy again. Now, hierarchies actually are quite biblical. They are impossible to avoid, as Jordan Peterson, who we talked about last week, has gone on about and has received a lot of flack for, and I don't understand that. You see a hierarchy in the parable of the unmerciful servant. You have the, the king... You have the servant that owes several lifetimes of wages. And then you have a servant in a lesser position than him who owes just a year's wage. There's a hierarchy there. There's hierarchy in the appointment of the judges of Israel. They had authority over Israel. They led the nation. In the choosing of a king, you had the establishment of a hierarchy. A hierarchy which, by the way, God objected to rather violently. 
because Israel was trying to replace a man in the place of God. Go back and read all, the, all about it and, and, and you'll see that God was not happy with the fact that Israel wanted a king. So hierarchies are, are unavoidable, basically. And everybody is in a hierarchy. And everybody, except for the very bottom level, actually has someone under them in the hierarchy. Every parent has children who are under them within the hierarchy of the household. So there are multiple hierarchical structures within society. But what this is saying is the master has to deal with those whom he has the authority over with the same kind of love that you would owe God and Christ. Now imagine that situation. A situation where every position in life we are responsible for treating everyone, both those above and below us in the hierarchy, with respect and love. The respect and love due to Christ. Can you imagine what that would look like? Every dealing I have would be done with respect and love. You know, there's an old hymn. I'm going to sing the first verse. My song is love unknown. My Saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that I might lovely be. Oh, who am I that I should boast? save in the cross of Christ my God. What this is asking is that we behave like Christ. And I think so often we don't because we don't expect to get the respect and love back. But the way God loves, sorry I'm getting a little emotional, God loves without any expectation. It is given to the loveless, to me, to you. To everyone. You know, if everyone in all the world's hierarchies behaved like this, dealt with everybody this way, wouldn't life be much happier? Wouldn't, in fact, 
wouldn't we actually have something like heaven? My charge to us each today. Let's go forth and make heaven happen. Amen.